I'm so glad to be here tonight. I'm honored. Uh, I get to tell my story one more time. Someday it's going to be the last time. And so I'm really honored that I can be here tonight. One morning, about a month into our captivity, we were all packed and ready to mobile. That's the word we used to move out, to be on the move. And we were new at this hostage thing, and we'd heard that morning that the military was near, so they told us to pack up and be ready. The leaders were all sitting around trying to decide exactly where we should go. And some of the guys, uh, and they met for so long that some of the guys got impatient, and they started setting up their hammocks again. All of a sudden, from across the field came soldiers running towards us with their guns blaring, and we hit the ground and began to crawl, much like I'm sure you've seen Marines in training, crawling, trying to get away. And as the Abu Sayyaf would fire at the military, we would get up and run. When there was a volley of gunfire our direction, we would drop and crawl. We got far enough away from the gun battle to head down a trail into the jungle but suddenly ahead of us, there was gunfire. So we headed off a different direction, gunfire down that trail. We headed over there, there was gunfire. A helicopter appeared from nowhere and began crisscrossing the field that we were in. And we realized we were surrounded. We, lay, we stayed all day long in that field. There would be sporadic gun battles all day long. The sun beat down on us. There was no shelter or shade. We had several wounded that day, and they bandaged them up as well as they could and put them, you know, where else? Right beside me and Martin. One kid, I was sure he was dying. He was one of the ones who'd gotten impatient, and he was in his hammock. He wasn't ready to run when the gun battle started, and I reacted the way I would react many times after that during our year when we were running for our lives or we were in a tense situation, I got diarrhea. There was long grass nearby, and I kept making trips into the grass. A good thing happened that day, though. Uh, we got a backpack. A few guys died in that early morning gun battle, and they started passing out their stuff. And a backpack came down the row of guys where I was seated, so I took it. And I put everything in there that we owned at the time. There was a sheet I'd taken from a hospital several days before, our toothbrush that we were sharing, a couple of shirts. And when night fell, we started to walk. We just walked right out of there. And we were to learn that one of the unwritten rules between the Abu Sayyaf and the military was they never had gun battles at night. Well, I still had the runs. And every time we would stop, I would go do what I needed to do. During one stop, I left my backpack on the ground by Martin. He was sitting on a log and went to go to the bathroom. As I was stepping back on the trail, the guys suddenly said, go, 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 move. Well, I thought the military had found us. So I ran and got behind Martin, and we headed down the trail. And I remember thinking, I feel so light and free right now when I realized I'd left my backpack back by the log. So I turned around to go get it, but a new guy had joined our group that night. He was big, he was mean looking, I didn't know him, 
And he lowered his weapon and said, you go. I said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm just going to get my backpack. It was right there. We could both see it. He said, no, you go. And I had to turn and follow Martin on down the trail. And I just started to sob. I fell apart. I said, Martin, I am so sorry. I have just lost everything that we own. And Martin turned and looked at me for just an instant. And he said, Gracia, I forgive you. Now you need to forgive yourself. Many of you have said, we prayed for you. We followed your story and we prayed. And I wonder how many of you were praying for us just when we needed it. I wonder if you were praying for me in that moment when I was trying to forgive myself for doing something so stupid. I call that my worst day followed by my best day because the next day we came to a little Muslim village and they killed a cow. So we had plenty to eat. And then a box made its way into that village from our new tribe's mission headquarters, some 600 miles away on a totally different island. How did that happen? And in that box was everything I'd left behind the night before. Plus letters from our children telling us that they were okay. They kind of told us in code that they were back in Kansas with their grandparents. And I want to thank you for your prayers. I never want to pass up the opportunity to say thank you. I think the fervent prayers of righteous people were heard in heaven and God sent that package on its way days before. So it would be in there when we were there. And we were in that village for just a few short hours, pretty short window of time, don't you think? And I think I'm a living example of what prayer can do. I wanted to let you guys know that we'll have a question-answer time at the end. So as I speak, if you have some questions, just jot them in your memory and, and we'll get to those a bit later. While we were held captive, I thought about the Jews when they were taken captive and how the Babylonians, their captors, would require the Jews to sing the joyful hymns of Jerusalem to them. And at one point, Psalm 137 says that the Jews sat beside the river and they wept. And they put their instruments away because they just couldn't sing any more joyful hymns of Jerusalem while in a foreign land. I did my share of sitting by the river, weeping. How well I remember the feeling of trying to get a song out without breaking down with, in tears. I was at the river one day with the other women hostages. Herira had just learned that he was going to be sent out on a striking force the next day. A striking force was a group of 10 or 15 guys who they would send to another area of the island we were on to wreak some havoc in order to keep the attention away from our group. And we never knew if we would see them alive again. Things didn't always go well for them, as you can imagine. Herira came over to me and asked me to sing him a song. I may die these next few days. This may be the last song I ever hear, he said. Well, several things came to mind that I could say to him in that moment. Like, I hope this is the last song you ever hear. But all the things that came to my mind were not nice. And he had the gun. So I just started in on the first song that came to my mind. Almost heaven, 
West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountain, Shenandoah River. Got to the chorus, realized what I was singing. Country roads take me home to the place I belong, home where I wanted to be. And I almost lost it right then and there. And you know what? I think Harira did too. Maybe it was just my imagination, but I think there was this moment when I finished that song that we both understood that we were caught in a struggle that was way beyond ourselves and we had somehow ended up on opposite ends of the battle and it wasn't nice for either of us and we were both scared and we wished we were home. The Jews had seen the Babylonians destroy their city, level it to the ground, they had yelled. They had seen the bodies of their babies smashed against the rocks. They were captives and they couldn't force another song of joy from their lips. Have you been there? At the bottom. Wondering how you got there. It happened so fast. Or maybe not for you. Maybe your trial was a long time in the making. It's when we're at the end of our rope that we look up and we seek God because there's nowhere else to look. And that's what happened to me in the jungle. I began seeking God as my comfortable life fell apart. I suddenly knew this problem was so big, I couldn't fix it this time. I got a good look at myself. I wasn't the heroic missionary wife who had it all together. I was tired and hungry and stinky. I had constant diarrhea, no place to take a bath, no clean clothes to change into. I started feeling more like an animal than a human being, but worse than that, I saw my heart for what it was. I saw my hatred. There were days I hated those guys for what they were doing to us, for the pain they were causing our family. I coveted the food they had when they ate it and didn't share it with me. I was faithless. I began blaming God for the situation I found myself in. There was nothing pretty about it. And at one point, I just gave up. <laughs> and I asked God, God, can you change me? I'm sick of being upset and depressed and bitter. Can you help me? Sometimes I think we're in such a bad way. We're such a mess that we don't even think God can fix us. Have you ever felt that way? Well, we've all heard that God is faithful. In every circumstance, He is faithful. And after I asked God to change me, He started, like, doing it. <laughs> Even in the midst of the mess. The first change I remember had to do with water. At the beginning of our captivity, after four or five days out on the ocean on a fishing vessel that the Abu Sayyaf had commandeered, we got to land and we were all excited because land meant the cell phones would work, the sat phones would work, the Abu Sayyaf could tell the government negotiators their grievances, the government negotiators would make concessions and we could all go home, right? Wrong. That first day on land, the military found us. We had our first gun battle, and we had to start running for our lives through the jungle. And here was this 40-something-year-old lady who wasn't fit, who was expected to keep up with these young guys who were used to living in the jungle, and I couldn't do it. 
And I especially couldn't do it without water. And there was no water. And as we ran down the trail, I started talking to God about that. <laughs> God, I need some water. I really, really need some water. If you don't send me some water, I'm going to have to sit down. And I realized what I was doing. I was nagging at God. And I made a conscious decision to change my prayer. And I began to pray, God, I think you know what I need. Would you help me to be patient till you bring it to me? And then God started answering all sorts of prayers for us. One day, Martin prayed, God, would you do something special for us today so we know that you know that we're still here and, and a, somebody brought us a Coke. The miracle, though, wasn't that the Coke made its way into the jungle. The miracle was the guys didn't take them all. And gave us one. But even as so many prayers were answered, our prayers to go home, it's like they weren't reaching the top of the trees. They were falling on deaf ears. At almost the year mark of our being held captive, I got really sick of that prayer not being answered. And I thought, okay, if God's not going to answer our prayer for release, I'm going to start praying for a hamburger. Because I figured if I was eating a hamburger, I was out of the jungle. You know, you go around the back door with God. And Martin laughed at me too, but I was serious. And I fervently prayed for that hamburger. Right about Easter time, someone paid a ransom for us. And you can imagine the excitement when some of the money came into camp. This was it. It's what we'd all been waiting for. We could all go home. And the leaders of the group sat down and had a big meeting, and they called me and Martin over. We sat on the ground with them, and they said, someone's paid a ransom for you, but we've decided it's not enough, and we're going to ask for more. And I begged them not to do that. I said, this is not going to turn out well. We are sick of this. You're sick of this. Just take the money and let's go home. But they were greedy and they asked for more money. But for a while, the group had some money. And that very night, they snuck us off of the island of Basilan, which by that time was teeming with soldiers. And for less than 24 hours, they took us to a little Muslim fishing village near a big city. And someone went into the city and brought back to Martin and me hamburgers, french fries, Cokes, they heard Americans like that sort of thing, right? It was Jollibee. I see some Filipinos here tonight. From hamburgers from Jollibee. It's like God hit me over the head. Can I not supply a hamburger for you in the jungle? I'm God, I can do anything. And when we got the hamburgers but not our freedom, we started thinking something must be going on here. God must have a plan in this. And you know, we both thought we would never make it home alive. We thought we would die there in the jungle. And our prayers began to change. And of course, we kept asking God for our freedom. But our prayer became more. God, you must have something to teach us here. Would you please help us to learn it well? The biggest change in me had to do with um, my attitude towards my enemies. 
Jesus told us how to handle the problem of dealing with enemies, didn't he? He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who use you. God began teaching me love towards those guys. There was this one kid, um, Akman. He was one of the guys holding us um, who was about 14 years old. There were young kids there as well as older guys, and he was a cute kid. For the most part, the kids did the menial tasks, the things the other guys didn't want to do, like carrying the heavy loads or fetching the firewood, but Ahmad was different. His uncle was the number two man of the Abu Sayyaf, and he carried an M14. And since he had a weapon, that gave him status, even though he was just a kid. He was very proud of himself. Well, you know how 14-year-old boys are. They're always hungry. And we would go for days sometimes with nothing to eat, and then food would come into the camp, and I would watch Ahmad steal our group's food and eat it all by himself in secret. I was filled with envy at that kid. I was the lowest hostage. I was an American, and I was a woman. And that was two strikes against me. And Ahmad decided I was someone he could boss around. And we'd be walking down the jungle trail and he would follow me, saying one of the few English words he knew, pastor, 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 faster, faster, faster. I couldn't go any faster. We were in a line for heaven's sake. One day, they allowed me and Martin to go to the river for a bath. And when I talk about a bath, we would step into the stream or the river with all our clothes on, and we would get ourselves wet. And if there was soap, we would soap up under our clothes, and we would rinse off, and we would drip dry. That was a bath. Well, they asked Ahmad to be our guard at the river. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to be out on guard duty or hanging around in his hammock, and he had to take the Americanos for a bath, and he had a bad attitude. While we were at the river, he started in on me. Pass ditter, pass ditter, pass ditter. So I started going faster, faster. I guess not fast enough for him. He started picking up rocks, throwing them at me. Pass ditter, pass ditter. Well, I'd had it with that kid. I wasn't used to being told what to do, especially by a 14-year-old, and those rocks hurt. And I just laid into him in English. I said, Ahmad, if you don't stop that, I'm going to take the longest bath in the history of all baths. And you'll never get back to your hammock. Well, he had no idea what I was saying, right? He just knew Mrs. Burnham was mad again. And the rocks kept coming till finally Martin sternly said, Stop that. And he quit throwing rocks. A few weeks later, we were in a gun battle, number 13. Ahmad was wounded in the leg. We were really in trouble. Uh, there was military everywhere, and because of that, they couldn't get him to the medical help that he needed. And he started to get feverish and talk out of his head a lot. They carried him for weeks. They would have to help him do everything. And one day I could tell he was very upset about something, and I found out he had messed his pants. There'd been no one to help him go to the bathroom. And I thought to myself, this thought came from God, y'all. <laughs> what if that was my boy 
in that situation. I would want someone to help him. I had a 14-year-old boy back at home, and I went over to him, and in my faltering Cebuano, the only language we shared a little bit of, I asked him what I could do for him. And as I took his clothes to the stream and washed them out, and as I threw them over the bushes to dry in the sun, in that moment, God totally changed my heart towards that kid. He gave me a love for him. I can't explain it. Ahmad eventually went mad. He went ranting and raving crazy. The last time I saw him, they were sneaking us off of an, uh, another island, and we had to go through a fisherman's hut to get down to the pier. As we went through the hut, I heard noises over in the corner. I thought it might be a big rat. I looked over there. There was Ahmad. He was skin and bones. His hands were tied to one side of the hut. His feet were tied to another. There was a sock stuck in his mouth so he wouldn't cry out. A hat pulled down over his eyes so he couldn't see. And I wonder where Ahmad is today. Is he dead? Has he recovered and he's walking down a jungle trail pestering some other woman hostage? Is he still crazy somewhere? I'm so glad I had the opportunity to be generous with that boy because I can look back on him and not have any regrets, but it's because God changed my heart and gave me the grace to help someone instead of hate them. And God is in the heart-changing business. That's what he does best. And God's still changing me. Be warned, though. I don't have to tell any of you this. Change is hard. Mark Twain was right when he said, the only person who likes change is a wet baby. <laughs> we get comfortable with life. Things are going well, exactly the way we've carefully planned them to go, and we're really good at that, aren't we? And then all of a sudden, bam, this problem hits, and it's not a small problem. This time it's a big one. And we have a choice to make. We can trust ourselves or we can trust God. When we choose to trust God with our problems, we come to know him in a completely new way. And I would encourage you, don't hang a do not disturb sign on your heart's door. Allow God to do what he wants to in your heart because if we just go through life and we're always comfortable but we don't learn important life lessons, wouldn't that be sad? We want to be changed so much that we start looking like the Lord Jesus. Isn't that how you want to look like the Lord? Little by little, God changed me. I began seeing them as the needy kids that they are. God gave us love for them. We began to be concerned about their spiritual welfare, contentment, even joy began to grow in my heart as I learned to Thank God for the good things I saw him doing for us every day instead of dwelling on the bad. I began finding songs of praise and singing them quietly out loud when we would lay down on, on the rice sacks on the jungle floor at night. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, 
I am worn through the storm, through the night. Lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. During long days of hiking, I would lighten my spirits by going through the alphabet with song titles. A. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? B. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You know this one. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day That was beautiful. See, close to thee, close to thee, close to thee, close to thee. All along my pilgrim journey, Savior, let me walk with thee. This going through the alphabet thing, it could keep my mind busy all afternoon because I'm a pastor's daughter and I know the hymn book. (laughs) Not just the first verse, I know all the verses. Those great hymns of the faith kept me focused on the one who works all things together for good to those who love God. And it quite honestly helped me keep my sanity. There are no hymns for X and Z, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Well, I have some news to share from me. I got a call a few months ago from the lead FBI investigator in charge of our kidnapping case. He wanted me to know that they are closing the case um, since all the leaders of the Abu Sayyaf that held us captive are dead now. It's time. Now, all the Abu Sayyaf aren't dead. Their terrorist activities continue in the Philippines. But all the leaders involved in our specific case are dead. So, uh, case closed. So glad to hear that. That is the second case that has been closed on my account. In the first case, I wasn't the victim of crime. I was the criminal. When I was a young child, I realized that I was a sinner. 
I had broken God's laws, and the penalty for that was death. But then I learned that Jesus paid the penalty for me. He died for me. I'm bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. And by faith, I accepted what Jesus did for me. So scripture says that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions from me. Which means the case folder labeled the sins of Gracia Burnham is settled as well. Case closed, forever settled. Because of what Jesus did for me on the cross, that case folder will never be opened again because he is faithful and true. Actually, if my sins were before me, wouldn't be one folder, would it? <laughs> but praise be to God. All my sins were laid on Jesus, and I stand forgiven. A much more important case to have closed than the one I heard about a few months ago, don't you think? The FBI is going to send an agent to bring some of Martin's effects that were found at that final crime scene to me, uh, to deliver to me in person. And I think at that point we ought to have a Thanksgiving party. Just like you guys have a Thanksgiving party when you meet with believers on Sunday. Thank you, God, for taking care of our sin and our death problem. We are so grateful. And I'm really grateful to have this Case closed as well. God's good. Well, Martin and I were members of New Tribes Mission for 17 years. NTM has recently changed their name, Ethnos Canada, and I'm getting used to saying that. <laughs> Working in hard places is what Ethnos Canada does. For 75 years, NTM Ethnos Canada now has been working in isolated villages, and there's still a lot to do. The job has to be done. The last tribe, the last man, and we need quality people to help us take the gospel there. And I have to wonder if in a group this large, God might be touching some of you with a special work. God's always picked certain people to do a difficult work. I don't have to convince you with this job. God's going to pick some of you. Do you have the faith, the courage, the urging to say, God, do you want me? Do you want to use my life? you want to use me to make a difference in the world? A long-term sign-me-up difference, not to go on a short-term mission trip, but a lifelong career missionary. And to some of you, God will say, yes, that's what I have for you. Ethnos Canada can train you and send you out. Even if you go with another mission agency, they can give you specialized training for going into totally unreached areas where you'll encounter very unique barriers. And if that's you this evening, we would love to help get you started down that path. You do know that you can have a worldwide ministry with any people group that you choose without ever leaving your living room, right? You can pray. Because when we pray... God works. Ethnos Canada needs prayer partners. We need you to start praying for tribal people and our works around the world. Please sign up for weekly prayer requests from us. There's a form right there to do that at your seat. We would love to have you on our prayer team. At the back, 
pick up our latest mission magazine. You'll read good stories there and ways to pray. On the form also, you can sign up to start getting this in the mail at your home. I would encourage you to give generously tonight. We're trusting God for the finances needed to reach hard-to-reach people. Maybe God would touch your heart to start praying specifically for Muslims. A sweet Mennonite lady talked with me one night after I spoke at their church. She said, uh, Gracia, you know what I do at night when I can't sleep? Um, I don't count sheep anymore. I count Muslims. One Muslim comes to Jesus. Two Muslims come to Jesus. Three Muslims come to Jesus. Oh Lord, may it be so for your honor and for your glory. Four Muslims come to Jesus. You have heard that Muslims all over the world are coming to Jesus. Haven't you heard that? My friend from Iran says, it's like God is running a special on Muslims right now. <laughs> and I have to wonder if what's happening in the Muslim world is a direct answer to prayer of some sweet Mennonite lady's prayer of faith at night when she can't sleep. All of us can be strategically involved in reaching the world. Well, you know how our story went, how for months it looked like our release was right around the corner and then something would happen and negotiations would break down again and we would be back to square one again and how that went on for what seemed like forever to us. And you know how Martin died in the gun battle that rescued me. But I got to come home and raise my children. Can I tell you about the kids? I think we have photos. They're grown now, um, as you can see. When we were taken hostage, they were 14, 11, and 10 years old. Um, we had left them on the island we normally lived on to go do some work on Palauan. As soon as we were taken hostage, they sent them to live with their grandparents. And they love the Lord and are serving Him. This is all of us on one of those rare occasions when we were together. And the next one is me and my grandchildren. And God's been really good to me. And my kids and I have asked people like you all over the world to start praying for our captors. And why are we surprised when God does something awesome, awesome and answers our prayers? I don't know. Oh, me of little faith. Um, I have a rest of the story. Several years ago, an American couple that works in prison ministry in the Philippines contacted me. They had gotten a hold of a comic book series that our foundation printed. Thirteen comic books on the lives of the prophets. Those men that Muslims believe to be prophets. Adam, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, on through Jesus. I have a few of them here to show you. We were so happy with these. They're colorful. They're beautiful. We printed them in Taosug. That's the language that many of the Abu Sayyaf spoke. And they gave them out in the prison, and the guys loved them. They said, anything else you print, we want to read. But they said the interesting thing that's happening here in the prison is some of these guys found out Gracia Burnham printed these. They're coming to us saying, 
We're former Abu Sayyaf. We're the ones who held Martin and Gracia captive. I said, well, ask them their names. Maybe I know them. Here came the names, sure enough. Guys, we walked with, lived with, starved with 23 or so of them in prison for the rest of their lives. There's Zacharias, who on May 27 burst into our room at Dos Palmas with his M16 and took us captive. He was so surprised to find out that our youngest son and him had the same name, Zachary, Zacharias, that we would name one of our children after one of their Muslim prophets, and we just let him think that. <laughs> also in prison is Daoud, the guy that used to sit and talk with Martin when we would rest during our long days of hiking. Daoud's job was to carry the solar panels through the jungle. The solar panels would help charge the sap phones and the cell phones so they could talk to the outside government negotiators. Daoud's wife and child had died in childbirth. And since the economy is horrible in the southern Philippines where he lived, he found himself with no family, no means of support. He joined the Abu Sayyaf almost as a career move. Martin and Daoud would discuss all sorts of things from jihad to being shaheed, being martyred. They discussed Daoud's hopes and dreams. They talked about whether Jesus really raised from the dead or not. Also in jail is Bashir. He was shot in the same gun battle that Martin died in, the one that led to my rescue. Bashir was unable to keep up with the group as they retreated down the river, so they left him behind to fend for himself in the jungle with 500 pesos, $10. You can't buy anything in the jungle. You can't take care of yourself. And several days later, the military found him. Gangrene had moved into his leg. It had to be amputated. He sends me notes every once in a while. Um, the letters aren't the only thing that I'm receiving from the guys in the prison. One time, Will and Joni brought this T-shirt that a bunch of them had signed. Inmate Maximum. I said, Will and Joni, what am I supposed to do with that T-shirt? You can't wear it to the mall. We get together every other summer to figure out ways to show the love of Christ to these guys, ways to bless them. And I could spend an hour telling you this story, but awesome things are happening. These guys are reading the scriptures in their own dialects. Some of them are going to Bible studies. I am supporting several of the poorest of the poor, so they have some means of buying soap to take a bath or to wash their clothes. And sometimes we don't even know if these are good ideas or not. Maybe they're stupid ideas. But we're just asking God to bless our meager efforts. And he has to make a long, awesome story very short. So far, five former Abu Sayyaf that I know of have come to know the Lord as their Savior. The most recent one isn't in the prison. He's outside of the prison, and word is his whole family has come to know the Lord. Uh, a new person in Christ, a brother in the Lord. And we can't really believe what God's doing, and 
We just keep praying. And I wonder if you'd want to pray too, uh, especially for Zacharias. Zachary, who's very hard and resistant towards anything having to do with the gospel. God can do anything, Candy. And it isn't over till it's over. And I think that God has let me be a small part of what's happening there in the prison just to encourage me because he loves doing good things for his children. Had I known while we were going through our hard year in the jungle that one day even one of those guys would come to know Jesus because of our experience, I think the days would have been easier to bear. <laughs> and I could kick myself now and say, would it not have been enough to trust a good God with the days of my life? Can we begin to believe that God takes us into hard situations, not to crush us, but so that we can learn to see his hand and learn to trust him when he's doing a good work? And his work is good. It's always good because God's good all the time. I've been encouraged that there can't be a harvest without seed planters. And maybe planting seeds isn't always fun. Maybe planting seeds for you is downright uncomfortable. And you don't see any fruit for your labors. You might wonder why you were called to plant seeds because... You're not even good at it. But all of a sudden, you see what God's doing. And I've been reminded that the seed we planted in the jungle wasn't wasted. Others are reaping what we sowed ever so long ago. God's Almighty, He can do anything. So keep planting those seeds, my friend, those seeds of the gospel that Christ died for our sins. Keep on when you don't see any fruit, when you feel like giving up, when you don't know what you're doing, just keep on. It's God that's going to do the work on down the road. Yeah. Thank you for having me.